0: if you're moving through the world every day with a brain under threat, then you can't really be authentic because you're so busy surviving. I mean, our our brains only have so many resources. And if you're spending all those mental resources fighting a tiger, which is actually what you're doing when you're in chronic pain, then you have limited resources for compassion or Um, creativity, or thinking about what your true passion is, much less pursuing it. So as you begin to retrain your brain to understand that you're actually not under threat, then all of a sudden you have all these neurons that are just waiting to fire that are related to your authenticity, your passion,
1: your energy levels. (music) Hey there, I'm Anna Holtzman, and this is From Chronic Pain to Passion. I'm a licensed psychotherapist and coach who helps passionate creatives like you learn how to heal from chronic pain and other symptoms so you can reclaim your energy and live the creative life of your dreams. In my past life, I was a disillusioned video editor working in reality TV And struggling with chronic migraine for over 10 years but after I discovered the mind-body methods that I'll share with you on this podcast I recovered from the chronic cycle and got back my creative spark and I want that for you too so let's get into it before we start today's episode I want to ask a quick favor if you've been listening to the podcast and finding it helpful Would you be willing to hit pause for a moment and give the podcast a quick rating and review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on? It would mean so much to me because your ratings and reviews help other people who are struggling with chronic symptoms to find the podcast. So thank you in advance for the rating and review. And now I'm excited to share today's episode with you. I sat down to have a chat with someone I admire very much, Dr. Elisa Batson. Dr. Batson is a double-boarded physician with training in both internal medicine and psychiatry. She has worked in varied medical settings, including adult primary care, inpatient psychiatry, outpatient community mental health care, and currently as a staff psychiatrist with Talkiatry, an online behavioral health company. After her medical training, Dr. Batson suffered through 10 years of debilitating chronic pain with over 20 different symptoms, including repetitive strain injury, jaw pain, hyperacusis, neck, back, and knee pain, anxiety, and panic attacks. She was able to fully recover after receiving mind-body therapy, which conceptualized her symptoms as being caused by internal emotional stress and chronic activation of fear-based neural circuits. Since recovering, she is now treating patients with chronic pain and other neural circuit conditions. She is the chief psychiatry officer and co-founder of OvidDX, an app-based educational platform teaching healthcare providers how to diagnose and treat these conditions, and developing office and home-based tools to facilitate care delivery for this patient population. Dr. Batson also serves on the scientific advisory team for Curable which is an online program and app designed to help people with persistent pain reduce their symptoms and calm their nervous system. I am fortunate to serve as one of the facilitators for Curable Groups which is their live online group program and in that role I get to hear Dr. Batson answer group members' questions during a live Q&A physician session that's part of the program. I learn something new every time, and I so appreciate Dr. Batson's openness about her own recovery story and her emphasis on self-compassion and standing up for ourselves. I was honored to interview her, and I'm thrilled to share our conversation with you. Welcome, Dr. Badson. Thank you so much for making the time to be here recording this conversation with me. It's such an honor and a pleasure to have you here. Thank you, Anna. I appreciate your asking me. It's always a pleasure for me
0: and honor for me to Join anyone in helping spread the news um, about um, chronic pain and how we can now treat it and cure it. So, uh, to whatever degree I can assist in that, I, I appreciate the
1: effort you're putting in. So, to me, I consider you one of my mentors, although you haven't formally mentored me. But you know, I look up to your work, and you're such a well-known name in this field. But for a listener who is not familiar with you or your work, could you describe what you do and who you help? Sure. So
0: um, I am a medical physician, and I'm uh, trained in internal medicine and psychiatry. So I've spent part of my career working in the medical field, um, always combined with psychiatry as well, adult psychiatry. Um, And as that's gone on over time, I've spent more time in the psychiatric field. Currently, I treat patients over telehealth, and um, I've developed a subspecialty, of course, in the field of treating chronic primary pain, which is pain caused by these neural circuits in the brain, Um, real pain, not imaginary, um, but how exciting that we now know that these neural circuits are causing the pain and that this can be, your brain can sort of be retrained, so to speak. So um, so that's what I'm doing now. And I'm also on the side of my clinical care. I'm developing educational programs to teach doctors, psychotherapists, nurse practitioners, life coaches, physical therapists, everyone in the um, medical and allied health fields um, how to diagnose and treat chronic
1: pain. So, it's such a needed resource, and it's so exciting to hear about that work that you're doing. I would love to ask you what led you to this work that you do.
0: Sure. So, I'm not sure how long of a answer you want, so I'll, I'll make it uh, short first, and then you can ask me more as you like. But. Um, Of course, when I was in medical residency, I was doing a combined internal medicine and psychiatry residency. And at that time, what that meant was you treated patients who had acute medical problems, and you also treated patients who had acute psychiatric problems, but they didn't overlap. They may have coincided, but they didn't overlap or influence um, each other in the evaluation of the patient or in the treatment approach to the patient. So, um, so I did that because I was very interested in you know how the body worked and the physiology of the body and treating people with heart disease and diabetes. But I also was very interested in mental illness. And so I wanted to do both. I didn't wanna give up one in order to pursue the other. So I did a combined residency. So when I got out of residency, I. Worked fifty percent of my time in a primary care clinic, doing adult primary care, and fifty percent of my time in a uh, in, uh, inpatient consult liaison service, um, helping people who were in the hospital having acute medical conditions and psychiatric conditions at the same time. So, so I was happy doing that, relatively happy and running around a hospital and going to my clinic. Um, but then I developed a chronic pain condition pretty quickly within months of doing my work. And um, I won't go into the particulars of it now in order to better answer the question. But um, I, by the time I got evaluated by my primary care physician, by the time I underwent testing, multiple rounds of treatment for chronic pain, medications, physical therapy. Um, I still was no better. And in fact, I was getting worse. And so I then left the conventional medical world and pursued treatment in the alternative medicine world. And I spent several years doing that. And after 10 years, I was no better. And after about a year of it, I couldn't do my job anymore. Uh, I had chronic arm pain. I couldn't type at a computer. This was in the era of electronic medical records. So if I couldn't put information into a computer, I couldn't see patients. So um, I was not able to work for the 10 years which I suffered, in which I suffered from chronic pain. And during that time, of course, it went from my arms to my back, to my neck, to my Legs and hips and head and ears, and (laughs) just about every body part you can imagine. Um, And no matter where I went for treatment, um, and I had every alternative medicine treatment under the sun, I I didn't get better Um, until by a stroke of intervention from above or luck. I don't know what you want to call it, but a former therapist physical therapist referred me to a website, which she had never even seen before. She didn't know anything about it herself. She just said, Hey, Elisa, I don't know what's wrong with you, but another patient of mine had a quote miraculous recovery by going to this website. I don't know what's on the website. I've never seen the website, but maybe it will help you. Well, I thought, oh my goodness, you know, one more treatment. I don't know if I can do this anymore. I can hardly get off the couch. But I thought, I can't give up, right? You get to a point where you just have to sink or swim and you just have to keep putting one foot in front of the other. And so I thought, well, I've got to go. I've got to go see what's on this website. And it was a life altering moment. Um, Within five minutes of reading the information on the website, I absolutely knew that I had found what had been wrong with me this entire decade, what I was suffering from. And strangely, this website knew me already. This website knew what I had been through in childhood. This website knew the stressors I was under as an adult. This website even knew my personality traits. And what was better than all of that was this website had a path for me to full recovery. So I was stunned and I was immediately grateful and I bought it hook, hook line and sinker immediately. There was no convincing. I knew that I had found the answer. The website was unlearnyourpain.com by Dr. Howard schubner who's a medical doctor specializing in the treatment of mind-body conditions. So I immediately picked up the phone. And what is even stranger is that instead of his uh, medical receptionist answering the phone, she was sick that day, and he answered the phone. (laughs) Wow. And I was horrified because I was like, oh, my goodness, Dr. Schubner, I, I, I didn't mean to call you directly. And did I call your personal number? Like, how did you answer the phone? And he spent the next 20 minutes with me, listening to my story. And he said, "Alisa, yes, this is what you have. You have a mind-body condition. There is nothing broken with your body. You are going to be fine. And this is what you need to do. So that was the first time in 10 years, anyone had said such a thing to me. And I was immediately filled with hope and felt so grateful and was ready to get started on the program.
1: You know, we're obviously talking about the connection between mind and body, right? And listening, just listening to your story, you're telling a story and talking about feeling finally understood and I would imagine cared about. He took the time to speak with you for the first time. So I'm hearing it with my mind. And my body felt this shiver running up my spine. I My shoulders shook a little bit, like when you see a dog shaking off water. And my tear ducts welled up. It was so moving to hear that and just to, to empathetically experience that feeling of just being seen and cared about.
0: Exactly. And you're right. Up until that point you know, I think there had been many doctors and allied health professionals who had compassion for me, but didn't know exactly how to help me. And even when they had an inkling that stress was somehow associated with this, they didn't know how to explain that to me. Um, they certainly didn't know how to treat it on the opposite spectrum though. I did have people who said, I think this is all in your head. Yeah. Or I had doctors who, um, who intimated that I was malingering or some sort of uh, worker's compensation. Um, So that was so discouraging, so insulting, so degrading Um, after I had spent nine years of my life training to be a double boarded medical physician, taking such pride, um, working so hard to get there and having gotten there and had this happen and then have someone say I was malingering and trying to um, fake my symptoms, that my symptoms were exaggerated, it was so, so discouraging. Um, so, so, you know, now though, you know, one of the things I do in my educational programs is not only teaching physicians how to understand what is going on in the mind, um, but how to communicate with the patient in a way that is compassionate, um, in a way that lets them know that they do understand what is going on, that it is not shameful, uh, that they don't need to feel um, less than or weak, um, that in fact, the reason they're experiencing these conditions is simply because they're human and this is how the human body works.
1: Yeah, Um, it's such a moving story. And it sounds like finding Dr. Schubner's Unlearn Your Pain was an incredible turning point. And I'd love listeners to hear how you would describe the journey from that moment, just a pinpoint in time, to your recovery, but also the shift that took place in your career. Sure. So um, there were fits and starts. Um, I
0: spoke with Dr. Schubner and he um, first off recommended that I read his book, that I work his workbook, his recovery workbook called Unlearn Your Pain. And uh, so I immediately ordered the book and I opened up the book to the first page and I was so eager to start reading and I got halfway through the first paragraph and I had a panic attack. And I was like, oh my goodness, what in the world is this? And so I shut the book, didn't want to go there. um, And I thought, well, we'll just try again tomorrow. So the next day, I opened up the book and I started reading, and I had a panic attack. And I was like, okay, this isn't going to work for me. (laughs) I can't get past the first page. So I called back Dr. Shubner. I was like, help, (laughs) what's next? And he said, no worries, I'm gonna connect you to a mind-body trained psychotherapist who's gonna walk with you through this process one-on-one. And he referred me to such a therapist and we began to meet twice a week in the beginning. And I worked with this person for a year and a half. Um, It took about two months to even begin to notice a shift in my symptoms. Yeah. And then after that, I began pretty steady recovery. Um, but it probably took a good eight to nine months to get, I would say, 90% better. But of course, the 90% better from pain doesn't necessarily give you full confidence to head back out into the world and to do whatever you want physically and even professionally. Um, so it took another few months to... Um, feel like I had developed the resiliency to move the way I wanted to move, to move my body without feeling afraid I was going to create pain Um, and also to reenter the profession of medicine uh, with confidence that I wasn't going to um, uh, have to leave again or be sick again. So um, so you know, I definitely used the techniques of graded exposure to get my life back together. And um ultimately ended up uh I wanted to test my body, um, test my recovery. And so I did a um triathlon, trained for a triathlon. Wow. triathlon. <laughs> First one I'd ever done. And the reason I chose to do that is because I had always wanted to do that since I was in college but I had not done it because I was afraid. Mm. And if you've learned anything about chronic pain, it's about stopping fear on all levels. And so I thought this was the perfect test. I was going to have to get over my fear of doing a triathlon. And so I trained and made it through the training, which was a miracle in and of itself. Um, And then I, I did the race and I finished it. Um, it was the heart, definitely the hardest thing I'd have ever done. But interestingly, I didn't have any pain after the race, wow. during the race, after the race, the next day, the day after the day after that, nothing. And um, so that gave me a lot of confidence that I was actually cured, that I was going to be okay. I went on to do the Perry Roubaix challenge in Europe, which is a, um, a, um, a bike, challenge over 200-year-old cobblestones um that was the hardest thing actually i've ever done that was harder than the triathlon uh riding over these cobblestones and um there was one point in the beginning of the the bike ride when you go from uh paved roads to the cobblestones and these cobblestones are really sticking up they're not flat you know at 200 years like napoleon was on these cobblestones apparently and um So uh, I hit these cobblestones and my neck started vibrating so, so um, intensely. I thought my head was going to fall off my body. I'd never experienced that much, much vibration in my life. And I immediately thought, oh, wow, if I don't get chronic pain from this, I will never get chronic pain again in my life. And I didn't. Amazing. pain during the race, after the race, the next day, the next day. And, um, uh, and most importantly, I didn't fall off my bike, which I was pretty happy about that. <laughs> so, um, so I, I did these physical challenges to give me some physical confidence, but then I had to go back into my practice. And so I opened up a small private practice so that I could control my exposure.
1: Um, I began part-time. I gradually increased my hours. Uh-huh. And, w- and when you say, I know what you mean when you say control my exposure, but for a listener who's thinking, are you talking sure. about exposure to pathogens right. or like, what is that? Yeah. What do you right. mean? So there's certain, um, uh, certain, uh, stressful
0: situations in any profession. Um, and so with being a doctor, there can be time stress. There can be the stress of being responsible for other people's well-being, uh, not just during the clinic visit, but at night and on the weekends. And um, and then um, the exposure of sitting at a desk all day or going to the office um, or balancing life and work. So, So if I were in private practice, then I could control the number of hours I worked and Um, the setting I worked in. So I wasn't jumping back into an emergency room or an intensive care unit, you know, I was controlling that as well. So, um, so gradually over time, I was able to increase that exposure, um, those, that um, stress exposure. uh, And now I'm able to work, you know, a full day and have a normal uh, career as a, as an adult
1: psychiatrist. So And did you go straight into practicing in a mind-body approach when you returned to your professional work? Actually, I did. Um, And that was interesting, too, because as I
0: I, I had recovered from my chronic pain and I knew I was ready to go back to work, but then my first thought was, oh, I want to do this. Like, I know this now. I've been there as a patient I'm trained as a psychiatrist, I'm trained as an internal medical doctor, like what else would I do? This, I'm perfectly trained to be able to assess and treat uh, patients with chronic primary pain. Um, but I was frightened because I wasn't specifically trained in any mind-body approaches other than having been a patient myself and recovered, which is important, but there's a lot more to being a psychotherapist than having been a patient, right? <laughs> and the treatment is psychotherapy. So, and I'm not trained as a psychiatrist, I'm not trained in psychotherapy. And, you know, we are trained to um, to do medication management for mental health conditions. Um, so I always look up to therapists and I always, you know, be, I'm always very clear that I'm not trained in psychotherapy um, because I think that's a very specific training. And then you take that an extra level an extra level of specialty to mind-body psychotherapy, um, which requires another level of training. And so I was very hesitant to just jump in because I knew um, these patients can be very sick. They can be suicidal. If I were to take a wrong tact, that's maybe not a good idea. And so I spoke to my colleagues about this who were already in mind-body medicine and working in that field. And I said, you know, I think I'm going to take a year to do a lot of training in this field, and they immediately said, no, Mm -hmm. do not do that. Go home and set up your shingle tomorrow. And they said, you are you are more trained than anybody in the field because you have been through ten years of chronic pain, you have recovered, Um, you've read multiple books you, you know, have read multiple papers, you have a background in therapy, you're a compassionate person. Um, So uh, you need to just start practicing because if you delay it, your fears will come into play. Mm. And and, which is true. And Mm. so I decided I was just going to take that advice because it came from a very wise person that I looked up to. And I did that. And I was scared to do that, but I kept walking through the steps anyway. Um, and so I, lo and behold, I ended up in an office and I ended up getting patients and it kind of went from there. Uh, now I see patients over telehealth um, with a telehealth company and I'm able to see chronic pain patients in that arena. Um, so that's how I, that's how I got from being a patient to a doctor. Yeah.
1: Thank you so much for um, sharing that journey with us. Um, Something that really struck me. Well, I'm going to get there in a moment. So, this podcast is called From Chronic Pain to Passion. And the reason I called it that is because something that I've experienced, I've heard from so many other people who've gone on this mind body recovery path, and I see it in clients too, is that there's something about this recovery process that does not just um, help symptoms to calm down, but it seems to unlock something, whether you want to call it our life energy, our passion, our authenticity, our purpose, you know, whatever language works for you, this process seems to unlock that. And what struck me that you were saying earlier was that your training for this career that you have was something you took so much pride in, something you were very passionate about. And it sounds as though the symptoms struck just as you were stepping out into your career. Is that accurate? That's exactly accurate. And in fact, my first
0: symptom developed one month into my first job
1: post-residency training. Yeah. Wow. And so I want to ask you, do do you relate to this idea that there's something about this process which starts with symptoms, symptoms is what leads us into this process, but did you experience something about this process, you know, the process you went on that was unlocking of some inner passion or life force or purpose for you?
0: Yeah, I think that is where you end up once you recover from chronic pain, because Um, If you understand the development of chronic pain, it can only develop if your brain uh, believes that you're under some sort of real or existential threat. So um, those threats can be conscious, but more often they're subconscious or even non-conscious. And so if you're moving through the world every day with a brain under threat, then you can't really be authentic. You can't really be fully compassionate because you're so busy surviving. I mean, our our brains only have so many resources to uh, draw from in a given second or minute or hour of the day. And if you're spending all those mental resources fighting a tiger, which is actually what you're doing when you're in chronic pain, then you have limited resources for... Um, multiple other functions in your brain such as compassion or um, creativity, um, or frankly, anything that involves memory <laughs> um, or um, developing relationships with others, or thinking about, you know what your true passion is, much less pursuing it. So when you're fighting a tiger, that is all you can do. And so as you begin to, retrain your brain to understand that you're actually not under threat, actually you're okay, then all of a sudden you have all these neurons that are just waiting to fire that are related to your authenticity, your passion, your energy levels, um, your ability to be spontaneous. Um, You don't have to worry about what is around the next corner that is going to attack you. Yeah. Be more fully present in the current moment and let the future moments take care of themselves because you now have all the tools and techniques you need to be able to address any stressors, anything that goes wrong in the future So you don't have to worry about it in advance anymore. You can let it take
1: care of itself as you move through your life. I love that metaphor of fighting a tiger. It fits so well. And it also, I think, offers a segue into something that I wanted to ask you about, because I've been fortunate to hear you speak a number of times on the importance of standing up for yourself as a part of recovery. I wonder if you could speak a little bit about why that is, what it is, and maybe even how it relates to or is different from that stance of like feeling like you're fighting a tiger all the time. Right.
0: Yeah. It's, this is so important. And I, I do think this is an under, um, underappreciated, not talked about enough aspect of recovery. Um, so, um, Alan Gordon, who's a well-known mind-body psychotherapist, um, pointed out to me as part of um, my training that there are um, certain personality traits that can put people at risk for developing chronic pain symptoms. And these personality traits are great to be, um, but they can also lead to our demise and, and harm us. Um, So they can lead to our success, they can lead to our demise. Um, And these personality traits are things like perfectionism, people who dot all their I's and cross all their T's, uh, people who put themselves under superhuman pressure to perform, to succeed, to strive, to achieve, um, people who um, are are constantly trying to please others instead of getting their own needs met. So I would, you know, some people might say these are people pleasers Um, and also people who have just chronic fear thoughts. So we have these personality traits and they have two sides to the coin. So the perfectionist does everything well, but the flip side of that is that they're highly self-critical, highly self-critical. Um, nothing they do is good enough. Uh, They're not smart enough. They're not sharp enough. They're not pretty enough. They're not capable enough. Um, Every minute of every day is not enough. And for the personality trait of uh, being a high achiever, that's also fantastic. You're gonna get the good grades. You're gonna get promotions. You're gonna get the good job, the good pay. All that's great. But the flip side of that is that you're constantly putting yourself under superhuman pressure to strive. And when I say superhuman, I really do mean that. It's not possible for a person to achieve that much under that much pressure without breaking down. It is superhuman, okay? Yeah. So we're not we're not super women, we're not super men. Uh, we can only do so much. Um, and so when you're constantly putting yourself under this pressure to perform, then that can have adverse consequences on our body. And then we have the people pleasers who everybody likes. Everyone wants to be friends with a people pleaser, right? There's so much fun to be around. They'll do anything for you. They are the best friend. They will go to the ends of the earth for you to get your needs met. But where they struggle is getting their own needs met their own emotional needs, physical needs, spiritual needs, psychological needs. And the flip side of this is that when you can't get your own needs met, then you suffer as a human being because you can't thrive in that environment. You can't thrive. So the treatment for this, like people will say, well, what am I going to do? I'm pretty stuck with this personality. It's not going anywhere. And you're right. It's not going anywhere. This is your personality. And it's not a bad personality to have. And you develop these traits for a reason. You develop these traits so that you could survive perhaps some childhood abuse, perhaps so that you could be loved more by a parent, so that you could live up to expectations um, by your community or your family, Um, There were reasons you developed these traits, and that's okay. That's okay. That's perfect. So the approach that we take is to practice self-compassion. Compassion Compassion towards ourselves. Now, this word is thrown around a lot these days, and most people don't even really know what it is, and I certainly did not know what self-compassion was. like, okay, I've heard that word. I don't know what it is. I got to get back to work. Excuse me. (laughs) I've got things to do. Um, But self-compassion is treating yourself as you would someone you really loved, like a child, or your best friend, or a family member you really cared about. Self-compassion is treating yourself in a way that you would treat them. And in order to do that, you sometimes have to envision that these Personality traits are a little bit of a bully, a little bit of a bully in your brain. And in order to um, address this problem, you have to eventually stand up to the bully. You have to eventually stand up to that little voice that says, you didn't do this very well. You're not doing this podcast very well. You don't look very good. You're making you're saying silly things, you know that little bit of voice that's always in the back of your mind, um, or perhaps that little voice is saying, "You really need to work harder." You know, you're doing okay in your career, but you know you could put in a lot more hours, and and you'd probably make more money, and you'd help more people, and it's not really enough. Or there's the little bully in the brain that says, um, "You know, you should really feel guilty that you didn't." Go to that party. You didn't uh, do that for that person. You didn't join that nonprofit. You didn't donate that money. Uh, you didn't bake that cake. You know all these little things that we have to do throughout the day, or that we think we have to do throughout the day. Um, there's a little part of our brain that says you're not enough, and you got to keep doing things for others. You don't deserve to have it yourself. You don't deserve to take time to relax. You don't deserve to take time to get your needs met. You don't deserve to take time to have a healthy lunch. You don't deserve to take time to get some exercise in today or to just get a massage if that's what you want to do. So there's this little bully in our brain who's telling us that we don't deserve, that we're not enough, that you are not okay and in order to overcome this bully, it's sort of like a bully on a school ground. If you can remember, I certainly had bullies on my school bus. I don't know about you. Um, but what I learned is that if you, um, if you just keep going back uh, without standing up to the bully, then the bully just gets meaner and meaner. It's sort of like the bully sees blood and they're like, oh, I found her weakness. I'm going to keep going back for more. Um, so to, to stop the bully, you actually have to stand up for yourself. And this is what standing up means. So you're not really standing up to a person who's in front of you. You're standing up to this voice inside your head who is telling you that you are not enough, that you are not okay, that it's not good enough, and that you don't deserve for you don't deserve anything. You don't deserve to have needs. You don't deserve to have a passion or to fulfill your passion, because you're not good enough. But that in fact is not true. And self-compassion is is practicing, telling ourselves and believing that we are good enough, that we do deserve these things, not because we've earned them, but because we're human. But sometimes if we grow up in an atmosphere where the adults around us are telling us we're not deserving, then we grow up to internalize that voice. And the abusive parent or whoever it was in the past uh, no longer has to be there saying this to you. You've internalized their voice and now you're doing it to yourself. And that's why you have to stand up to this bully inside your brain and say, you know what? No, I'm not going to listen to you anymore. I'm done. I hear you. I know you're there. But I know now that I am worthwhile. And you can't tell me I'm not. I know this. And so I am going to stand up and say, no, whenever I hear you say you're not enough, whenever I hear you say you need to work harder, whenever I hear you say, um, you don't have, you don't have a right to your own needs. So this is what standing up is about. It's about standing up for yourself. And the reason you do this is because you deserve it. The reason you do it is
1: because you're fantastic and you do not deserve to be bullied. Something I just love about your explanation of that is that it it brings such a different light than i think what people usually think of when when they hear the phrase self compassion i think when people hear self compassion they think soft gentle calm soothing right and it certainly can be that but it can also be as you're saying it can be assertive it can be standing up to a, an internalized bully in your head it can um be uh, scary actually to practice it at first because standing up to a bully is quite challenging. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. And I love the, that you brought up that it
0: can be scary at times because if you, for example, have grown up in an atmosphere where you didn't, you weren't allowed to have expression of your own emotions, you weren't allowed to have a voice, um, then suddenly taking back that right can be very scary because you may have learned that when you did that, you got punished. When you did did that, you had something you loved taken away, whether it be an object or a privilege or maybe a parent's love. So so learning to uh, stand up, learning to have a voice, learning to feel your authentic emotions Specifically, learning to say no when you mean no and yes when you mean yes can be very, very scary. Very scary, and so you have to practice. And it's going to feel uncomfortable at first, um, and it may not lead to very good outcomes. It doesn't mean you're going to please everybody just because you're standing up. And in fact, you may not please very many people at all. But that
1: doesn't make it not right. Yeah. One of the things is that we've got to stand up for ourselves about, and I think you named this, is that we deserve pleasure. We deserve fun. We deserve joy. And in fact, we need those things as part of our recovery. And I bring this up because there's a story I've heard you tell before that I think is valuable and for so many reasons. But it's the story that I've heard you tell about your recovery from one specific and more on the unusual end of things uh, symptom, which is hyperacusis pain in the ears when you are hearing any kind of sound. I wonder if you could share that story with our listeners as well.
0: Sure. Yeah. So um, towards the end of my pain journey, my pain (laughs) had traveled all the my body and it ended up in a place where I did not even really appreciate people could have pain. I, as a doctor, I knew there was this entity called hyperacusis, but I had never imagined what it could feel like. Hyperacusis means you're very sensitive to sounds. And when you hear sounds, it creates a very sharp, uh, specific, uh, fast pain in your ear. Um, It's as if your ear had been hit with something. Um, And um, so I developed a symptom and the problem with hyperacusis is it's not the big sounds that just cause a problem. It's the little sounds. It's the shutting of the door gently. It's the uh, spoon that falls on the ground. Um, It's driving in a car and hearing uh, another car honk their horn. Um, So it it makes it very difficult to function in a modern world where there's so much climbing and banging, much less within your own house with another person. Sometimes people can't even hear their voice without their ears hurting. So um, if you just speak to them gently, it will still hurt their ears. So hyperacusis is a a very difficult pain to have. Um, And um, so I had this, and of course, when I developed this symptom, my world really shut down all of a sudden I couldn't really go out. I couldn't go to restaurants. I couldn't have dinner with friends. Um, I had to walk around my own home very gently. My poor husband, you know, had to be so careful about shutting the door or doing anything, dropping a dish or, um, chopping vegetables even. Um, and so it was very hard for him as well, just living with me. Um, and so, um, So I began my recovery and I was months into my recovery, but I was still having hyperacusis and struggling. Of course, with each symptom, you you always wonder, is this symptom my body, or is this really the structural problem? Is this the problem I'm never going to recover from? Um, and of course, hyperacusis is a little bit more unusual. And so, and you have doctors saying, well, we don't know what causes it, or we think it's this or that. And of course, with all these functional conditions, there's no treatment. Um, and so it's it's really scary. And um, so uh, one day I was sitting around and I had to be careful with like, I couldn't listen to podcasts. I couldn't listen to music definitely. And so I had to be very careful with the computer, making sure the volume was off. And, but one day, Um, in playing around on the computer or my phone, I don't really remember which, um, I saw this guy dancing on a a a podcast or a video of some sort, like YouTube video or something. And it seemed to be like a popular video. And I was kind of curious. And I thought, oh my gosh, like that's really cool. Like I've never seen that type of dancing before. And apparently it was called dubstepping, which you know, now people know what that is, but you know, I was pretty. I've never been very, uh, you know, savvy about what's popular and cool. So So to me, it was very neat and exciting. Um, And so I'm watching this guy dubstep on this video. And I thought, I wonder what kind of music he's dubstepping to. So I turned up the volume just a little bit. And I was like, "Mm, that's kind of cool. I like that song and I turned it up a little more and I was like oh I really like that. And so he was stepping to Adele's Set Fire to the Rain. Ooh yeah. <laughs> and I'm I can't remember the name of the dancer. I need to I need to figure that out so I can tell the story properly but um so which that that song's kind of, you know, stimulating and exciting and you know upbeat. And uh, so here this was, this guy was doing this very cool dance to Adele's Set Fire to the Rain. And it was one of those songs that just hits you, you know, on a personal level, like this song is my vibration. Like this is in my DNA. And I was just taken over by this whole musical experience. And I was listening to it and I realized, ah, I'm not really having pain right now hmm, I wonder if I could turn up the volume a little bit. And I turned it up a little bit and was still like totally amazed by this experience. And I turned it up a little bit more. All of a sudden I realized my computer was on full volume. I was completely enthralled with this musical experience and I didn't have any ear pain. This story is so amazing. And I knew in that moment that this, Was not structural. This was a neural pathway in my brain. And like all the other neural pathways that create chronic pain conditions, chronic primary pain conditions, I could turn it off, which I had just done, and it could be turned back on. And at that moment, it was demystified, and I was no longer afraid of it.
1: So amazing. This is so, so amazing. I mean, you're talking about fear, of course. And earlier you were explaining to listeners that in order to turn down these pain signals that our nervous system is sending us, we need to work on turning down the fear in our system and focusing, you know, from that direction first can often work or be useful and from the story that you just told, what I get and I resonate with is that we can also work at it from the other end, because when you turn up the joy, the fear naturally gets turned down.
0: Exactly. And in fact, Howard Schubner has said to me, you know, you can't, you can't activate the joy neural pathways at the same time you can the pain neural pathways. They, they block yeah. each other. And so we always say that when you're, you know, somewhere towards the end of your recovery, when you're not so focused on your pain and you're making gains, one of the things we always encourage patients to do is to start putting the pieces of their life back together, to start turning towards joy in everything they do. Um, And if they never knew what joy was, to start finding it to start experimenting, to start getting out there in the world and seeing what does give me joy? What should I experiment with? What about that? Oh, yeah, I wanted to I wanted to take up dancing that one time, but then I was afraid I'd make a fool out of myself. So I didn't do it. Now's the time to
1: do that. If there is a listener who's listening to our conversation right now, and they're hearing the word that you're saying, they're feeling inspired, they're thinking, yeah, joy, I, I want that in my life. I, I want that. Um, but I feel so far away from it. Maybe this person has not even read a book or taken a, a course or whatever. They've not really steeped themselves uh, that much at all into this mind-body work, and they're feeling overwhelmed about where to begin. What might you say as a word of encouragement to that person? About where to begin
0: finding joy?
1: Um, not just finding joy, but where to begin this whole process, because there's so much to it, right? I mean, just in this conversation alone, we've talked about so many different aspects of this recovery process.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I think that the place to begin the recovery, once you have, of course, seen a primary care physician or a medical specialist and had structural conditions ruled out safely, um, once you are at the point where you feel you have a mind-body condition and that that's been confirmed through various lines of evidence, then um, the place to begin, I think, is with psychoeducation. So it's with listening to podcasts like this, You know, listening to other people's stories, beginning to understand how this is even possible, because this is not something we're taught. This is not something in our educational classrooms. This is not something our doctors are teaching us. You don't see hardly any bookshelves, um, books on the bookshelf about this. So begin following the, um, the sources online that lead from one uh, piece about how you can learn about this to the next. Listen to the podcast listen to the uh, programs that people like you and other mind-body specialists are putting out there. Uh, So much of this was not around when I was um, recovering. And, you know, there really is a lot out there right now. Um, So I would just spend a lot of time listening, listening and learning. And I think that's the best place to start. And then I think you're going to get, as you learn what the risk factors are for this condition, then you're going to begin to understand what your risk factors are. Is it the adverse childhood experiences I had if you had any of those? Is it the stress I was under at the time my pain came on, uh, going through a divorce, uh, losing so much money in 2008, uh, closing my business, retiring, um, the death of a loved one. Is it these personality traits? Does that resonate with you? Um, the perfectionism, the high achiever, people pleasing, people who are hyper-vigilant. Um, is, uh, is it these conditioned responses, which we didn't talk about a lot about today, but people with chronic pain do get conditioned responses and this can reinforce um, the, uh, the threat signal in your brain, keeping the threat signal turned on um, as you believe though falsely believe that uh these activities which are tip bar, which are actually benign and neutral um are causing your pain um so learning uh, if that's a part of your picture uh and then finally do you have repressed emotions which might be keeping your threat signals turned on in your brain um, so, so I think after you learn about this, then you can begin, um, seeing how it relates to you and your life in particular, you know, making a list of your childhood stressors, a list of your adult stressors, uh, making a list of your personality traits, um, seeing if your pain, uh, fits the, the care, the nature of mind, body pain. Um, and then, uh. Once you realize that, you can begin to get a sense of where you might fit in your recovery first. you know What would be the best first step? Are you someone who learns from reading books? Get some books. Are you someone who prefers to interact with people on a regular basis? Well, then therapy might be a good first step or a group recovery program online somewhere. Um, and um, so, so there are many types of resources out there there's no one right way to get better. And so it's really important to emphasize that most people with chronic pain will have this sudden fear as they begin their recovery, that they're not going to choose the right path to recovery, that there's a right path and a wrong path. And you know, what is the recipe for them? Um, you can't go wrong. Okay. Because every step you take, you're going to learn something. And, uh, uh, you don't need to have that be just another fear thought that keeps your threat signal turned on. So just keep putting one foot in front of the other. Um, you will find your way. And I always say to people, it's okay if you're still having pain and you haven't recovered, because what that tells me is that you just haven't yet fully realized how to best take care of yourself in the face of life stressors. And we have to learn that. And so you're right where you need to be in order to learn that. So when I was in the midst of my chronic pain, it was because I was going through life not knowing how to practice self-compassion. But now that I know that, I I don't get chronic pain, or I get it very infrequently. So, So this is all just a process of learning how to better respond to life's inevitable stressors in a way that doesn't harm us, Um, rather in a way where we can maximally use our creativity, um, maximally use our uh, passion, our memories, our resources, uh, so that uh, we're not uh, having to worry about fighting the tiger all the time, so.
1: Thank you so much for that, Elisa, and I'm so grateful that you named the fear that nearly universally comes up about not choosing the right place to begin or the right steps and this idea that there are, you know, one there there is one right path, giving people permission to just really start anywhere and see where it leads you and trust that you will find your way. It's such a beautiful and I certainly believe true message. Dr. Batson, thank you so much for being here with me, with this audience today. It's such a thrill and a delight to speak with you. And before we sign off, where can folks find you and the work that you're doing and what what kinds of things can they reach out to you for, whether it's your the training program that you're developing, whether it's, um, I don't know, what what types of things are you offering?
0: Right. So these days, um, I see patients over a telehealth platform called talkiatry.com T-A-L-K-I-A-T-R-Y. Um, and because I'm licensed to practice in the state of Tennessee and New York and soon to be licensed in Missouri, um, I can see you if you are on, if you are in those states at the time of the appointment. Um, I typically do, um, uh medical evaluations for chronic pain. And then I typically don't do the work myself, but I refer on to people like you um, who can uh, treat people with chronic pain, uh, psychotherapists, online programs like curablehealth.com or various other print resources. Um, so you can also uh, find me. Um, uh, if you would like to uh, learn more about how to diagnose and treat chronic pain, uh, you can go to oviddx.com. That's oviddx.com, And there uh, we have created uh, mobile first app-based training programs uh, where you can learn these skills. You can learn how to make the diagnosis. You can learn how to talk with the patient. You can learn how to do the treatment. Uh, these programs are for doctors, therapists, uh, psychotherapists, physical therapists, occupational therapists, massage therapists, life coaches. Um, frankly, anyone who wants to purchase the program can purchase it, even if you're a patient. the The language is geared towards professionals, but if you anyone can purchase it. So. Um, again, we want everyone to be speaking the same language. We want everyone to understand this, including the patient. It doesn't need to be a secret. Yeah. There doesn't need to be a wall between the healthcare providers and the patients. So um, you can go there to access those resources. Um, and then uh, if, you, if you are suffering from chronic pain, um, I also work with curablehealth.com. Um, on their scientific advisory board. And I am part of their groups program. And maybe if you join a a group program, you might uh, be matched with me for a two hour um, uh, session where I just answer questions about chronic pain. So, so those are the, I also have my own website, alisabatsonmd.com, and you can email me there. Um, So those would be the ways to get in touch with me or to, um,
1: to participate in anything I'm doing. So,
0: yeah.
1: Fantastic. And I will of course, put all of those links into the show notes so that people can access them easily. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank all right. you again, Thank Dr. You, Batson. Hope to speak with you soon. It. All, all right. right, goodbye. Bye-bye. Hey friends, it's Anna. Let me ask you something. If you're struggling with chronic symptoms, Have you ever felt like pulling your hair out and screaming, why the bleep am I still in pain? That's definitely what I was asking earlier on in my recovery, so I can totally empathize and I would love to help you get some clarity. So I've created a quiz just for you that's called, why the bleep am I still in pain? And yes, you can take this quiz even if your symptoms are not pain specifically. Just head to my website, AnnaHoltzman.com, and you'll see a big old button there that says Take the Quiz. So why don't you head there right now before you forget? And if you found this episode helpful, please go rate and review the podcast. That helps other people who are struggling with chronic symptoms too to find the podcast, and I would appreciate it enormously. Thank you for listening, and until next time, take good care.